This is MMA Torch editor Jamie Pennick, and this is the Torch audio update for Wednesday, May 27th, 2009. Uh, I'm joined once again by Matt Pelkey and Jason Bentz, Torch columnists, to discuss last weekend's UFC 98 card. Uh, guys, we had uh, a changing of the guard. We finally have someone that I think might be holding on to that light heavyweight title more than uh, just winning the title fight. Uh, in Leota Machida, and a surprisingly good card w- coming in with low expectations. Um, outside of on the main event, what was your high point of the card, uh, and what were you most excited about on this card outside of what happened on the main event? Matt, let's start with you. Well, uh, for me, it's got to be uh, Frank Yeager's performance against Sean Shirk. Um, I completely underestimated him and, and actually issued a formal apology to him in my in my roundtable review, which I think was richly deserved for him. Um, I think Shirk was still the, the bigger, probably stronger fighter, but I think Frankie Edgar actually was the better wrestler in that in that fight. He got taken out and I think what one time and pretty much popped right back up and any other time that they were they were clinched, you know, he, he wasn't gonna be taken down and aside from that his his boxing, his kickboxing completely outclassed Sean Shirk, who we all considered to be kind of, you know, the the next best thing other than BJ Penn in the lightweight division. Um, I think he takes a little a step down after after that loss, but not too far down. He's still a very good fighter, but Frank Yeager was, aside from Leona Machida, obviously, put on the performance of the night and really announced himself as a contender in the, in the lightweight division. Um, he's probably got at least a couple more fights because he did get dominated in a fight by Gray Maynard, but he's he's kind of got a more exciting style at this point, which we obviously know when when all things are equal, the more exciting fighter is going to be one that, that gets the shot. So I think Frankie Edgar came out of nowhere basically to announce himself as in, in the short list of title contenders after the BJ Penn Kenny Florian fight. And uh, Brock Larson was very impressive again on the undercard, but that's probably the last time we're going to see him on the undercard. Uh, it was a dominant victory over a, a pretty decent opponent, other than being a you know completely last minute you know last last minute opponent. Um, but Brock Brock Larson's due for a step up in competition, and uh, we'll see him against somebody uh, a lot better on on a main card next time. Jason, I'll toss the same thing over to you. Uh, one Frankie Edgar, one A Brock Larson, uh, definitely Edgar because obviously he was on the main card. Larson, I've got to give it to him because I'm thankful he made, you know, the main showing of his preliminary bout against Pyle. Uh, You know, you're right about Edgar's boxing. I personally think that boxing is what set up the fact that Shirkwood was not even willing to shoot or even try to engage him at all in a clinch. I'm just completely shocked at this one because, like you and everybody else, I predicted Shirk to win this unanimously, and he did not. Frankie Edgar looked great. He was able to flip everything utilize his reach completely. This is a textbook example of how to utilize your reach, especially against a guy as aggressive and good as Sean Shirk. He made him look like a fool. He was swinging and missing. Edgar was moving and slipping. It was fantastic. I'd like to see Edgar, you know, perhaps against, like, Stevenson. I think Joe Stevenson is kind of like a litmus test. And I think action-wise, with what Edgar showed us against Shirk, I think that would be a great fight to watch. You know, I could see that one headlining a fight night or something like that. As far as Shirk, I still think he is the gatekeeper to the elite. 
based on this performance, I think Edgar might eventually make his way to the elite. I would like to see, you know, Sean Shirk against Gray Maynard. I, I think that would be a good fight because maybe that will light a fire under Maynard's ass or would at least show us what Shirk has left. As far as Brock Larson, a fantastic showing against, a, you know, a late opponent. Uh, the fact that he made air and a lot of people who are not familiar with him got the chance to see him is fantastic. Like Matt said, He's not going to be on the undercard for long. He is a beast at the welterweight in the welterweight division. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do against a higher grade of opponent, better caliber on the main show. So I would have to give Frankie Edgar the number one and Brock Larson with 1A. All right, we're going to go right into that Sean Shirk-Frankie Edgar fight. You guys touched on it already a little bit, but it was our first fight of the night. Um, goes to a judge, judge's decision here. Uh, Frankie Edgar definitely just u- utilizes his reach and utilizes his quickness to get it in in and out on Sean Shirk and um, you know let's uh, let's not uh, have any doubt about it here. Shirk didn't really take a lot of damage, but he ate a lot of shots and was outpointed through all three rounds. And uh, was you know Edgar was extremely impressive in the fact that like like you guys touched on. He was shaking off the clinches, and even when he did get taken down, he got himself back to his feet pretty quickly. Um, I think the most surprising part of this is that Shirk only shot in for that explosive double-leg takedown one time in the third round. He never tried it in the first two rounds, and it's one of those things where had he tried that throughout the fight, it's something that he definitely could have... uh, utilized to his advantage because he's got the size, he's got the the explosiveness on that shot, and he would have been able to wear Edgar down a bit more with the wrestling had he even attempted it, which he didn't do for the first two rounds. I think he's gotten himself to this point where he's he's been working on his striking to improve that part of his game, and he wants to show that off, that he's still got that, but he's still got those small arms for uh, for his stature and it, it just, he's not able to get in and out on, on guys the way Edgar was able to do on him, do to him. And, you know, like Dana White said in his video blog, he didn't think there was any way Edgar was going to win this fight. Uh, and, and Edgar came in with a perfect game plan and executed it perfectly. Um, and again, it wasn't one of those fights where he, he beat up Sean Shirk. He just beat him. Uh, Jason, anything else to add on, the, on this first fight? Two things that I think really stand out from this fight. Uh, the first is Edgar when he fainted a takedown early in the first round. I think that really set the tempo and it showed the difference in, in speed, that Edgar had the superior speed. The other thing was with 30 seconds to go in the fight, and there is no way Shirk's corner told him he had this fight. There, there's no way I'd want to hear it. But 30 seconds to go in the fight and Shirk is trying to jab. He's trying to throw jabs with 30 seconds to go. It makes no sense. And he shot him with that double leg with 11 seconds to go. Just completely ridiculous. And, and that's why he's not shot. You know, Shirk didn't take any damage in this one. Edgar comes out looking like a star. But Shirk definitely, we've got to see what he can do again instantly because, you know, this was just an awful showing and it just looked piss poor on, on his, on his behalf. Uh, Frankie Edgar looked fantastic and it showed what speed and reach combined can do. But, Fainting for the takedown and Shirk biting on it, coupled with Shirk uh, making the just foolish decision to begin jabbing with a half a minute to go, told the story of this fight for me. Matt, did you have anything else to add on Shirk Edgar? 
Well, kind of what Jason's talking about there, it's, it's a problem I see all the time in, in fights where we can we can rag on somebody's game plan all we want, but there's a certain point in the fight where you know I need to go for broke because if I don't stop this guy, I'm going to lose a decision. And Shirk had to know that, and you, you constantly see fighters, you know, sticking with, well, I'm just going to sit out here and keep boxing away. No, you need to get inside, you need to dirty box, you need to take down, you need to go for broke, you know, with the ground and pound, and, you know, you know, drop back for a leg lock if you have to. You, you have to win that fight any way possible. And continuing with the game plan that's lost you the fight all the way through to that point is even dumber. Um, I think Sean Shirk, as much as his stand-up has improved, and he, he fancies himself a boxer now, his arms are so short that he's going to lose to anybody who's better, who has better stand-up, just like Frankie Edgar. You know, Frankie Edgar actually can employ that wrestling in reverse strategy because he has reasonably long arms for the division, and, and he does a great job of mixing his punches and kicks, whereas Sean Shirk really just punches, and that's all he knows how to do. Um, Shirk needs to, you should probably go train with Randy Couture and, and learn about fighting guys that are, have bigger frames than you and longer arms and, and get inside them and, and dirty box and, and grind them. You know, he, he's not a guy that's ever going to be able to sit on the outside and, and box with someone. That's just not going to work for him no matter how much he thinks it is. So that's definitely something that Sean Shirk needs to work on if, if he's going to continue to be a major force in the, in the lightweight division, but, I mean, you just got to give all the credit here to Frankie Edgar for having a great game plan and executing it. Our next fight of the night uh, definitely could have been a much different fight were it not for the uh, early sequence in the first round here. Uh, Chael Sonnen against Dan Miller. Um, Sonnen almost got himself caught in the submission. Well, he was in the submission, he managed to power himself out of the guillotine choke really, really early, but uh what happened here is is Dan Miller completely gassed himself trying to um lock that guillotine in and choke Sun and out, and he almost had it. I I mean th- this was really, really, really close. Uh Sunham was holding on to the point where you, you thought maybe he was just gonna pass out in the choke, finally popped his head out, and Miller wasn't the same the rest of the fight. Uh, Sonnen did a lot of damage in the first round, and then in the second and third was content to just take Miller down and stay on top of him. Mil- I mean, you gotta give Miller a lot of credit for staying in this for 15 minutes, because, uh, it, against someone other than Sonnen, it may have been over quicker, um, because Sonnen did nothing to try to finish this fight, and, uh, the second and third rounds were just Definitely lay and pray from him, but he he was active enough uh, to not have the fight stood up multiple times. Um, he takes the unanimous decision here. Uh, disappointing for Dan Miller, but he almost had the the guillotine in, and it was um, it was gassing from that that hold in the first round that really changed the outcome of this fight. Uh, Matt, your thoughts on our second fight of the night? Well, twenty seconds into this fight, I was about to jump out of my seat because I thought I had nailed this prediction like Jason nailed the, the Christoph Shazinski Kimura last time around. Uh, I I wrote that um, Chael Sonnen was going to charge in early, make his typical mistake, and get guillotined. And it almost happened. But when it didn't, and this is the problem with guillotines, people have to be very sure they're going to sink in a guillotine because the longer you hold on to that, uh, 
the more gas your arms get. And inevitably, the guy pops his head out, your arms are dead, and you're on the bottom eating shots with dead arms trying to defend yourself. Not the smartest game plan unless it's a specialty like uh, a Joe Stevenson. Um, you know, it wasn't the, the the greatest fight in the world to watch. The first round was was exciting because you had the near submission and then you had four minutes of brutal ground and pound from Chael Sonnen. Uh, second and third rounds obviously kind of tailed off a little bit because Sonnen realized he had basically had the fight in the bag and he could just keep doing what he had been doing and keep himself out of danger, and that's what he did. He, he coasted to a victory. He he kept his job, which is what he needed to do. Um, it's unfortunate for Dan Miller because I kind of had him ticketed for uh, a steep rise up the ladder after this fight, but he'll go back down a peg and and, and maybe hopefully face someone that's not a, that good of a wrestler, and B, that experienced, because he faced the same wrestling disadvantage in his last fight against Jake Rochalt, and but Rochalt was so new to the game that, you know, he was going to fall prey to the mistake that he did and get submitted. Chael Sonnen's been around for a while and was, you know, tough enough to tough out that guillotine and then impose his will for three rounds. So I, I don't really know what you do with Chael Sonnen. Um, he's never going to be a title contender in the UFC like he was in the WEC. Uh, he was a, a flute contender there in the first place. So, I mean, he's a, he's a very good wrestler. He has very good top control. Um, it just comes down to, do you have a good enough jiu-jitsu game to submit him? So, I don't know who you match up either of these guys with next, but um, it'll be interesting to see. Jason, your thoughts on this one? Uh, Dan Miller impressed me more by surviving, going the distance, than Shell Sonnen did by powering out of that guillotine. I think Miller showed a lot more of a willingness to want to finish. You know, he gassed himself out, and it ruined him. He was shot for the rest of the fight, but the fact of the matter is he tried. Chael Sonnen did not try. He, he did a little bit of ground and pound early, but it was a lot of lay and pray late. And, you know, remember, this is Chael Sonnen, the guy who said he was better than Anderson Silva. I, you know, I, I still don't know where he was coming from with that one, although, you know, the fact of the matter is Chael Sonnen can at least say that he put forth a more boring performance in his fight with Paleophilio than Anderson did against Latus or Cote. But, you know, Sonnen survived, got the win. He, he remains in the UFC for at least another fight. I don't see him lasting beyond that because he's just he's rudimentary. He can't defend the submission at all. And against a Miller who actually had some gas, this would have turned out differently. Had he not overextended himself and just emptied the tank, on that guillotine, it's likely he would have submitted him in the second or third round. It's just he had nothing left. Sonnen really didn't impress me. He just went by the numbers. He got the win. He survived. Uh, you know, the crowd booed vociferously. Uh, they're not going to want to see him again. I don't want to see him again. But he got the win, and he's going to at least get the chance to do so. This was just a miserable fight. And, again, Dan Miller impressed me more in his full effort while it wasn't the smartest thing since he was unable to, you know, continue successfully after that, he impressed me so much more than Sonnen's lack of effort and seeming disinterest in trying to finish this one because Sonnen needed to finish this fight if he wanted to even try and gain any fans or win back the very few he may have had, which I think he lost a few cousins' support and maybe even his own mother after the Felio fight. But, yeah, <laughs> Sonnen's going to be one and done after this one with, with another piss-poor performance, especially a loss. After that snooze fest of the second and third round, we got the crowd back into it with Drew McFedries against Xavier Fupacom. Um, 
you know, McFedries came out and he did what he does in the UFC, and that's either stop someone or get stopped in the first round. Uh, his fights are going to end quickly. It's not a bathroom break when Drew McFedries is out there. And, uh, wow, did he just destroy Professor X here. This fight probably should have been stopped about 10 to 15 seconds earlier than it was. Um, Pacam was taking a lot of shots that uh, were a little unnecessary because he was loopy uh, from, from the first one. But McFedry's uh, impressed here with a quick TKO. Uh, you know, it's not really a fight that should have been on the main part of a pay-per-view um, for the UFC. It, it's, it's a fight that really would be welcome on uh, many other promotions cards, but uh, not one that really should be uh, a paid-for for these two fighters. But still, McFedries puts on a good performance, picks up a quick TKO, uh, Jason, any thoughts on McFedries and his win here? Uh, this fight was the equivalent of like a cell phone alarm clock. You know, Sonnen put us to sleep, and McFedries woke us up, but he didn't really make us want to get up because all we wanted to do was hit the snooze button after what Sonnen did. You know, 37 seconds. Uh, not much to say there. Professor X was blasted out. Uh, you know, it was just what the card needed at this point, even though, again, this was not a fight that belonged on the card. But after the Sun and fight, a, a lot of the fans that were sitting around and watching this at least got one of those, oh, did you see that? One of those kind of moments, and for what it was, I at least accept it. But, again, this was not a fight that belonged on the card. Uh, what does McFedry show with this win? Not really much of anything, other than the fact that he impressed a few people who really weren't cognizant of the fact this was not a great fight. It wasn't a pay-per-view caliber fight. But it's a win, nonetheless, for one of the good guys in the sport, and, you know, if he gets a, if he gets a shot on a fight night or something, I'm happy, but he really does not belong on the main card, especially not in a fight like this. I mean, McFedries is a good guy. This was a you know, nice, quick TKO, but really not much of anything here. Matt, your thoughts here on the quick fight? Um, yeah, there's not much to really analyze here. Drew McFedries did what he does. Uh, I, I you got to feel for Professor X. I mean, in his debut, he gets... One of the better middleweights in the world, and Dennis Kang, who basically takes him down and grinds him out because he's a better grappler. And then in the, the second fight, you get a guy who's just going to bull rush him and throw bombs until somebody gets knocked out. You know, but neither of those two uh, really fit his style of of standing up and, and trading back and forth from the outside. So I, I kind of hope I, I'm guessing he's going to be on the the chopping block after this, being zero and two. But I kind of hope they bring him back for one more, and, and you know, on an undercard, obviously. But one more time to to give him an opponent that can actually, you know, see what he can do. I think he's just had two bad matchups so far, and they've he's come out on the losing end both times. Um, I, I think it's funny we're talking about how this doesn't really belong on on the main card. Um, Strike Force is putting on a show, you know, next weekend, and this fight wouldn't have come close to making the main card of a, a Strike Force event yet. Here it is on on the main card of a a pretty big UFC pay-per-view with with one of the best main events, uh, even on paper, in a long time. Um, I, I almost feel like it was put on there because uh, Dana White and Joe Silva probably said, uh, we've got Edgar and Shirt, that's pretty much going to go to a decision. We've got Hughes there, that's pretty much going to go to a decision. And, you you know, you got a plan for Machida and Rashad to go five rounds of a tactical battle. Um, so they maybe just figured... We got to have a knockout somewhere on this card, and you knew one way or another that match was going to deliver that. So 
that's what we got. Uh, really nothing more, nothing less. Drew McFedries doesn't really move up with the win, and uh, Professor X, I don't think, really moves down with the win. It's just it was what it is, and and uh, we'll see Drew McFedries, obviously. He's going to always have a job. He seems to be one of Dana's favorites anyway, so we'll see him again maybe on a fight night card knocking somebody else out. It's a good point on why that perhaps made the uh, the main card portion of this with, with the other matchups they had very likely going to a decision. That's uh, um, something I hadn't even thought about on that. But because of the quickness of that fight, we get to see our first preliminary, preliminary fight of the evening with uh, Christoph Sashinsky taking on Guzmau. Um, you know, Guzmau had a couple of uh, nice leg kicks in this fight and uh, tried to get the tie clinch working a little bit, but Christoph held him off on that and, you know, got him against the cage and landed uh, uh, some really good punches and got a big flurry in that knocked Guzmau out cold. Um, so after two submission victories in a row, uh, Sashinsky comes in and picks up a, a, a knockout win. Um, big win for Christoph, and uh, he continues his steady climb up the, the mid-card of the light heavyweight division. Uh, Matt, any thoughts on Christoph's uh, first-round victory here? That's not a nice win for Christoph. Um, I, I just... I like Christoph. He seems like a good guy, but just watching him fight, it just he doesn't look like he's he has the skills, and at the age he's at, that he's ever going to have the skills to really be a, a contender in the division. I think he can be a very good uh, gatekeeper up to you know. If you can beat Christoph, you're you're kind of in the top ten, top fifteen of the uh, UFC's light heavyweight division, and you're ready for bigger and better things. But um, you know, he sees 3-0. and That's that's good for him. Uh, Guzmau probably gets the X uh, after this. You know, he lost the decision to John Jones and then gets knocked out by Kristoff. So things aren't looking too good for him when fighters are always getting cut. But uh, Kristoff's developing a nice little fan following, I'm sure. He was on The Ultimate Fighter, so he got the exposure there, and he's won every fight. And I think they've all been broadcast uh, so far, even though they've all been on the undercard, but we still get to see him. So a uh, nice win for him. Um, hopefully we'll, he'll get a small step up on, in competition next time. We'll see what he really has. Jason, any thoughts on Kristoff? Uh, just other than fact, this was a good win for one of the good guys from the Ultimate Fighter. He's known to, to most of the people that are going to be watching the pay-per-views. Uh, with Kristoff, he's, he's a C-grade fighter, but he's got that A-level exposure. And when you compare him to guys like you know, Ryan Bader, who won, uh, Efrain Escudero, who won, uh, Felipe Novert, you know, who lost. He's got Sashinsky, who people just generally liked more. So all of his fights have made air. People like him. I think he's going to be like Stefan Bonner in the fact that he's never really going to do anything other than tread water. He'll probably never even come close to having a fight of any significance at all like Bonner, but I think he's one of the nice guys from Tough. He's likable. People know him. He's got a marketable look. And as long as he wins some of these fights on the undercard, wins more than he loses, of course, he's always going to have a place in the UFC and, you know, always for the duration of his career. This was good for what it was, a nice knockout for him. And if anything, it can build Kristoff up to where he is at least somewhat of a name so that you can feed him to somebody who's actually going to be a contender. So he does serve a purpose all the way around, I think. That brought us to our co-main event of the evening. Matt Hughes against Matt Sarah. This was the the Bad Blood Showdown, two years in the making, and you know it was a it was a good fight. 
it wasn't a great fight. It wasn't what a lot of people were expecting. Um, an inadvertent headbutt in the first round made it a lot uh, closer than it was. Uh, originally in my report, I gave the first round to Sarah. Um, in retrospect, with the headbutt and uh, looking back and watching it again, Hughes won that first round, but I stand firm that Matt Sarah won the third. And uh, if, if anyone... Uh, outside of the, if he had done more outside of the headbutt in the first round, Sarah may have gotten um, some more points on the uh, the judges' scorecards. But the fact of the matter is, Matt Hughes wins this one. Uh, I think he reverted back to a little bit of lay and pray in the second uh, second and third round because of uh, getting knocked silly by that headbutt. But needless to say, he wins the fight, and uh, you know they seem to. Uh, to, to squash everything with this at the end. Um, I, I don't know if it was disingenuous on uh, Hughes's part to raise the arm of Sarah. Uh, I, I, it was a, it was a nice sign of sportsmanship, but with the feud the way it had been and the bad blood and the, the talking the way it had been up to this, I don't know that it was the right way to go with it. Um, I, I, they can show the sign of sportsmanship, but it doesn't necessarily come off as authentic with the things that they were saying uh, about each other before the fight. So, Jason, your thoughts on the co-main event of the evening? Well, I, I actually gave Sarah the first round, and I gave Hughes the third round, so we're exactly opposite on that one. Uh, taking away the fact that it was a headbutt, since the referee didn't stop things or call it or deduct a point or give me time to recover, because obviously you couldn't tell, I think Sarah wins that first round based on the fact that he almost stopped it because Hughes was damn, he was out of it and he was damn near out of it as far as this fight and it's very possible it could have been stopped. And as far as the reason why I gave Hughes the third round, Sarah really only won the last 30, 40 seconds in my mind. Again, you know, judges judge the fight differently. Every one of us do. We still had the same result, but it's just interesting to me how we had the different rounds there. Uh, the problem with this fight was it was so long in happening that there was no way it was ever going to really please us. And the way it was set up, you know, obviously Hughes and Sarah was never going to be a stand-on-a-dime, slug-it-out kind of fight. So, uh, you know, this build-up to it, it would have been a much better fight. It would have been just worlds better. But for what it was, it was still okay. The problem is it just wasn't a very good fight. It's just their names carried the day. The feud made it worth watching. If you took away Hughes and Sarah and you made them, you know, Tim Smith against Jim Williams, this would not have been a good fight. The fans would have been booing and pissed off just like Sonnen versus Miller. I, I think the raising of the arm, I'm actually okay with. I, I don't view that as anything smug or, or less than stellar on Hughes's part. I, I don't really look at it as, as the sportsman type thing. I don't think that was Hughes' MO on that. I think it was, in the heat of the moment, we just had a great fight. This fight was so much better than it had any right to be, you know, from Hugh's perspective, because he almost lost this fight. And this was a fight that he figured was going to be an easy win, just like the rest of us did for the most part. I think in that moment, it was raising the hand like, look at us, we just went through a war. It was that sort of thing. I don't really view it as disingenuous. Uh, Although, I tell you, it was hard to watch Matt Sarah in his post-fight interview because he was just ready to cry. I mean, if anybody is just ready to give up and throw it in, this feud meant so much to him. 
that to lose it, and especially to lose it this close after he damn near had Hughes out. I think this is going to have more of an impact on anything Sarah does for the rest of his career. He continues to fight with his age. It's not going to be that long, but I just think this is going to bother him. It's going to be an albatross that he's not going to be able to recover from because he did not win the big one. He beat GSP. He won the title. But that did not matter really compared to this fight. This fight was life for him, and he failed. And it's just going to haunt him. As for Hughes, I still stand behind the belief he's going to face Silva. I think that's not really a fight that's necessary, but I just see it as a fight the UFC is going to make. Other than that, I don't know. I don't know. You take away that knockout in the first round, uh, maybe Hughes would have showed us a lot more, but at this point I really would rather him get one more fight close to home. If it is the Silva fight, fine. Anything else, so be it. One and done. Get into the Hall of Fame. But Sarah's shot after this one, just mentally. Mentally shot. He's cooked. Matt, any other thoughts on Hughes and Sarah? Um, you know, it, it went kind of the way I expected it to go. Um, I kind of feel bad for Matt Sarah because in the the, the pre-fight build-up, he said, you know, this is just the greatest thing in the world because I don't like this guy, and I get to go punch him in the face. And he really didn't get to punch him in the face for <laughs> three rounds. Um, you know, he knocked him silly with the headbutt and then landed a couple more good shots after that. But that was about it for for Sarah. Um, I can understand if you gave the first round to Hughes, but I think the headbutt was Matt Hughes' fault. He kind of threw his chin into Matt Sarah's head. So, um, And he was knocked loopy. I think you really have to score based on who does the most damage. I think my big issue would be... If, if you gave Matt Hughes the third round, because if you go back and rewatch that third round, he gets the takedown early, but immediately Matt Hughes starts working rubber guard. He's got him tied up in an omoplata. Um, then when Matt Hughes finally shakes loose of the rubber guard, uh, Matt, Matt Sarah throws up a triangle, and then he throws up an arm bar, and then he gets back to his feet. Matt Hughes threw one punch the entire time in the third round that he had Matt Sarah down. Then Matt Sarah gets the bigger takedown afterwards and actually starts throwing some shots on him. So I, I feel like there needs to be some more specific criteria of judging. You know, like Goldberg, every every show says it's a 10-point must system based on effective striking, striking, grappling, aggression, octagon control. And I feel like too many judges put 90% of the emphasis on octagon control. Just because Matt Hughes was on top, you know, he, he did literally no damage in that round. Matt Sarah was the one constantly, you know, having having Matt Hughes fend off the submissions, and then once he got to take down, he actually rained down some punishment. So um, my other big beef is, is with the bonuses. I, I can't believe this fight was given fight of the night. I, I thought it was a, a pretty much complete letdown of a grudge fight. Um, if anybody had uh, the time to go back and, and watch the George Roop Dave Kaplan fight that opened the, the night. That was a, a heck of a little scrap that they had that would have felt like something a little more special if it wasn't being fought in front of 40 people sitting in the nosebleeds. Um, there was nobody there to watch that fight, and, and let's face it, the crowd can really make or break a fight. So I honestly think if there was a big crowd watching the fight, they would have been going crazy, and they would have been hands-down fight at the night. It also could have been to Sean Shirk, Frank Egg, Frank Yeager, or Leona Machida and Rashad Evans. Both were, were better fights, I thought, 
So I, I don't understand why two of the guys who are actually probably going to get pay-per-view revenue bonuses need the extra $60,000 as opposed to two guys getting like $8,000 for their fight. Um, I don't understand that that business philosophy of uh, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Um, other than that, it was kind of a letdown of a, a fight for me. Um, I was really hoping to see. I, I mean, I, I understood it wasn't going to be a stand-and-trade kind of fight, but I wanted to see a, a little more of them co- going back and forth with each other. I, I thought Matt Hughes would have been at least brave enough to, to give Matt Sarah that opportunity, but uh, I guess not. Um, I don't have any problem with the sportsmanship at the end because they made it clear, you know, they don't they don't disrespect each other as fighters. They have a lot of respect for for what each other can do. It's just they don't like each other personally. So, you know, getting in the cage with somebody and battling out for three rounds, you're going to have even more respect for them at the end, and that's fine. I still don't think they're, you know, going to go have a beer with each other afterwards, but you know, that's that's fine to, to shake hands at the end. I think that's the right thing to do. Um, the one thing this fight didn't do for me was show me that Matt Hughes has anything left in the tank. Um, head put aside, it just wasn't a very good performance from him, and I don't think that after watching that, that all of a sudden he's got more left in his gas tank to go fight Anderson Silva, of all people. I don't think, you know, rematches with, Seattle Alvarez or George St. Pierre make any sense either. They would just get destroyed like he did the first time around in those fights. So I just think this would have been a fine spot for him to hang it up and, and go into the Hall of Fame at UFC 100. I don't really know what he's going to do next. I don't. He's a free agent. Is he going to find a new three-fight deal? That doesn't make any sense to me. So, um, Matt Sarah, he's yeah, he's in his mid-30s, but he really doesn't have a lot of miles on him fight-wise. I think he could fight several more years, especially at the one, maybe two fights a year pace that he's been on. Um, but I think Jason's right. I think after having this typed up in his head so much and not being able to do what he wanted to do, I think it's going to be too much for him. And I just think he should go back and, and train at his school and, and do what he does best, which is train and, instead of fight. So um, overall, let down of a fight, and I just don't Before we get into the main event, I want to touch on the uh, two prelims that made air after it. Brock Larson defeating Mike Pyle via arm triangle submission and getting submission of the night for that. And uh, Tim Haig uh, coming from behind to pick up a guillotine choke over Pat Berry after getting uh, blasted with a head kick that that nearly knocked him out. Um, first, on you guys touched on Brock Larson at the beginning of this, but um, I mean... I. I continue to say Brock Larson is one of the um, most underrated welterweight fighters fighting right now. Uh, he, he's continually um, consistent with his with his performances. I mean, his only losses are to Carlos Condit and to John Fitch, one apiece. If he fights them now, this year, next year, I'm not so sure he doesn't uh, get those wins back. Uh, I mean, they could they could definitely have uh, a three-fight series with, with both of those guys against Brock Larson. Um, Mike Pyle, he last second, as about as last second as you can get. Um, he, he, he finds out hours before the weigh-in that he's going to be taking this fight, and they give him extra time to weigh in and don't penalize him for not being able to make weight because of that. 
and he he comes out and he tries pretty much every trick that he has in his book to pick up a submission, but Brock Larson was too fast, too strong, too good for him, and he picks up an arm triangle himself. Uh, on Pat Barry and Tim Hag, Barry just does not have a ground game. I, I mean, he showed off why he's a dangerous, dangerous kickboxing striker um, with that head kick on Hag, and Hag damn near uh, got himself knocked out, but he recovered enough to cinch in the guillotine and and go home a winner here in his UFC debut, and he made the pay-per-view card. So more power to him, but Pat Berry basically gave away that, that fight. Um, Matt, any other thoughts on Brock Larson and then on Tim Hag's victory? Well, uh, I don't really have much more to say about Brock Larson, per se. Um, obviously, we think he's headed for bigger and better things. I, I definitely think Mike Powell should be given another fight in the UFC. That was a, a long overdue debut for him in the first place. Um, he, he's a very good, talented veteran fighter, so you owe it to him after him stepping up and taking, I mean, like you said, literally a last second uh, of fight for him. You know, give him another shot on the undercard to, to, to keep him around, and I, I think he'll be pleasantly surprised by what he gives you. Um, he's had very, and that's got to be a more disappointing of a performance than Sean Shirk. Um, not because he has a game plan. His game plan is to kick people's heads off. That's what he does. He's fun to watch. But, I mean, he basically got submitted by what looked like, you know, a white belt in jiu-jitsu out there. Just, he was rocked and just left his head out there to be snagged by a guy who was still trying to recover. And that's, that's inexcusable. Um, he's got to realize that there's some big, tough wrestlers in the heavyweight division that aren't just going to stand up there and let him punch and kick them in the face while while they take it. Um, they're going to take him down and, and submit him in, in half the time that it took Tim Egg to do it. So he's got a lot, a lot of work to do. And I would honestly recommend they, you know, tell him to go down to some smaller fights and, and, and say, look, we need to see an, an improved ground game from you before we bring it back because otherwise there's not going to be much point. You know, we'd have to tailor make matchups for you and that hurts the integrity of the UFC. So he needs, he's got a lot to prove before he comes back, I think. Um, but obviously he's, he's going to be welcome anytime he does come back because he's so talented on his feet and it's, it's fun to see a heavyweight be able to move and strike like that. But all in all, very, disappointing performance from Pat Berry. We didn't get to see the Techno Viking dance either. Jason, anything else to add on these two? Um, if you look up game opponent, Mike Pyle's picture should show up. I mean, this is what you should try and do. Actually have a go of it. As far as Brock Larson, this kind of reminds me of you know going back and watching old pay-per-views where GSP was on the undercard. Larson is that special, and he's so special that I can see a point where you could you could write down Brock L is a UFC champion, and you're going to say which one? Are you talking about Lesnar? Are you talking about Larson? Larson has that ability. Uh, as far as you know, Barry and Haig, uh, you know, a couple things. Barry had this fight. You know, he landed the head kick, staggered him. You know, his sloppiness allowed Haig to to get the victory. And I mean, Pat Barry had to have felt robbed. I mean, he had to have felt like he just stayed the night at Chris Wilson's or something. Wait, wait, too soon. <laughs> But uh, the only thing I didn't like about that was after it was over, the way Tim was basically giving, uh, you know, verbal fellatio to Dana White as far as, oh, thank you, Mr. White, and the Fertitas, you know, begging for – I don't like that. I don't like how Dana's cultivated this, this feeling of the mafioso boss where 
you know, guys when they win are still begging for another opportunity, begging for that job just out of fear. I really don't like that. He should have been just happy with the win, celebrating it, and hoping he'd come back rather than just begging for it. That was the one thing I didn't like. Uh, you know, Barry is a guy that can, you know, kick the head off of anybody, but uh, if you can avoid that or if you can survive that, he's easy game. Uh, you know, I agree. He should hit the smaller shows, and he could dominate on that circuit, maybe pick up a little bit, just some semblance of a ground game, and he could at least be a serviceable opponent. But he's not going to be anything more than that in UFC. And if anything, just of the two fights, Brock Larson shows how things have evolved. This is what a future star looks like now. He, he can do just about everything. Hits like a truck, wrestles like a gorilla, I believe is what he said. It's true. And Pat Berry shows that you cannot get by with just being a striker anymore. The game has evolved. These two fighters, these two fights are perfect examples of that. And they were great undercard fights to have seen, especially Larson. The kid is going to be beyond special. Uh, he ain't undercard for long. Well, and uh, talking about beyond special, let's get to our main event. Uh, Lyoto Machida uh, challenging Rashad Evans for the light heavyweight title. Rashad Evans' first title defense after defeating Forrest Griffin in December. And this one went differently than I think anyone expected. Uh, the, the first round was about what people were thinking, but even more impressive on Machida's part after, you know, a lengthy kind of feeling out process that people were really expecting. Machida's elusiveness and his ability to get in and out without taking damage was so apparent here, even more so than any other fight he's had in the UFC. I mean, you look at at the stats from this fight, and in the first round, Rashad Evans lands four strikes out of 25. In the second, he lands three strikes out of 29 attempted. That Evans landed seven strikes in this fight. Machida, 34. This is this was a complete one-sided affair on Machida's part. And against a fighter that is very good in Rashad Evans. I've, I've not given him the credit he's deserved in, in, in some of his past fights, but it wasn't as if he came into this as some chump champion. Rashad Evans is a very good fighter at the light heavyweight division, and he got completely outclassed by Machida because he could not figure him out. Machida is not the counter striker that that he's been pegged at. He's 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 more than that. Uh, his stance is so unique and different, and it, just everything about him is different than any other fighter. That they just don't know what the hell to do when they get in against him. And uh, after the the feeling out process in the first round, there was a a, a really good sequence where um, Machida sent Evans to the ground and and pounced on him, but Rashad got himself back to his feet. And then uh, Machida gets in a couple of kicks before the round ends, and you're just thinking, going into the second round, this is picking up. And then in the second round, Machida does what I don't know if anyone thought possible in coming into this fight, and he rocks Evans with a left and uh, stays on him, does not let him recover. Uh, Rashad gets back to his feet and gets up against the cage, and Machida's just teeing off on him, finally after missing a left, backs away from the cage, lands a right, and then lands a left flush on the chin, and Rashad Evans gets knocked out cold. Guys, the Machida era has started, 
Rampage Jackson is his next challenger. What were your thoughts on Machida's performance here? And uh, assess Rampage's chances against the new champion. Uh, Jason, let's start with you. Machida's performance was nothing short of special. In fact, consult the thesaurus. We're going to run out of words to properly describe what he can do. Uh, you you would have better odds of heading to an NBA game and hitting the half-court million-dollar shot with one hand than you conceivably could at striking Machida and actually landing the killer blow. Rashad has quick hands, more than adequate power, but he just could not find a way. I mean, you look at the first round, three minutes, 30 seconds, two landed blows, both from Machida. Evans was completely befuddled. Machida can frustrate. He can befuddle you. And now he's shown that he can go for the kill. He has a willingness to do so. And you know what? There may have been plenty of backstage locker room meetings where it was kind of insinuated, look, guy, we know what you can do, but you need to turn up the heat a little bit and work a little bit more towards being entertaining. Go for the kill. Don't be content to do what you did, you know, in the past. And looking at the future, I think Rampage has a great chance. I'm not willing to completely say that Machida should walk through him, anything like this. Rampage is Rampage. He's got a great chance, but he cannot fight his typical fight. He will get embarrassed. He won't just get beaten soundly, thrashed, beat up. Rampage will get embarrassed. And to be honest with you, mentally, I don't think Rampage could could even handle getting made to look like Rashad Evans did on Saturday night. If there's ever a time he would go off the deep end, that would be it after Machida. I think after Machida dispatches of Rampage, because I do believe it will happen, I do believe this is a time when a guy like Tito Ortiz could actually be worth bringing back into the fold. Because you have Tito, who was one point away, based on a penalty, of defeating Evans, handing him his first loss, and he damn near pulled off the submission on Lyoto Machida in the third round of their bout at UFC 84, and he's the last guy, and in fact the only guy that most can remember, who came even close to having a dominant position against Machida. You couple that with his personality and the fact that he can sell tickets and sell fights. You add that with the fact that Machida now can finish fights. You've got the makings of a fight that could possibly need to be made if Machida runs through everybody, like I would imagine. A guy like Forrest Griffin, forget it. Just forget it. Forrest is game. Forrest could. But if Rashad couldn't, who can? You you know, Rampage is going to have to show that he can fight an entirely different fight. I believe he could. But will he have the willingness to do so? Can the Wolf Slayer even help him come up with a game plan to do that? And at this very moment, I think no way. I, I truly believe that we've all been fawning over Anderson Silva forever. Leoto Machida has snuck up, and he's going to overtake that spot. And I think instead of looking for the next Anderson Silva, as far as just true dominance, I, I think people are going to be looking for the next Leoto Machida because, again, he hits, he hurts, and he doesn't get hit at all in return. And he no longer has to just play keep away to win a fight. He can make you miss. He can make you pay. And conceivably, he should be able to hold on to this belt for some time. Offhand, I cannot think of anybody, if they stick to their normal game plans, their normal style, there is nobody's style that could mesh or possibly give him trouble. Everybody is back to the drawing board to start all over again. Machida is just a new age of fighter. And he really could be the once-in-a-lifetime fighter because, you know what, there is no other fighter that fights that style. There's no other fighter that probably could fight that style. Maybe he's eight in a karate school somewhere, but Machida is it. 
very special for real, and he should have that belt for a pretty good time. Well, and without writing off any other challengers, the thing is, anyone that's going to even have a chance to defeat Lyoto Machida is going to need to fight a perfect fight, and they're going to need to capitalize on even a minute mistake on Machida's part, and I don't know that that's going to happen at any time. I mean, Machida's shown that he he can capitalize on other people's weaknesses, and he can uh, find even a small part of their game that he can exploit, and he will do it. And he's just he, he's so, like you said, befuddling that it's it's extremely difficult to to do anything against him. And if you're not prepared for that, once you get in the cage, then you might get to the point where you just don't know what the hell to do. And and now I, I expect a lot of his fights, even if they go into the later rounds, they're going to be finished because just because uh, he took fights to the decision now, all of his fights have five rounds now. And uh, I, I don't know if very many people are going to be able to hang with him for five full rounds. So, uh, Matt, I'll throw it to you now on uh, Machida's performance and um, the chances of any challengers against him. Well, right right after that fight ended, uh, I sent you a, a text, Jamie, that said, best fighter in the world. And I'm not backing off that statement. He moves to my number one pound-for-pound pound, uh, rankings ahead of everybody because I don't think he can be beaten right now, and, and I don't care who the person is. You can't catch him. You can't hit him. And, and Jason, you brought up the, you know, Tito Ortiz kind of gave him a run for his money. Uh, Machida dominated that fight for three rounds up until almost getting caught. I mean, he, the only reason he was in that position in the first place is because he crushed Tito with the knee to the body that sent him crumpling to the ground. And, and I honestly think after that happened, he went to him back to, you know, back home, back to his training camp and said, I can't believe I was that close to losing to Tito effing Ortiz. You know, he's he's got nothing on me. And then in his last two fights, both against undefeated fighters in, in the two most high-profile fights of his career, you know, one a co-headliner on the huge George St. Pierre-BJ Penn event, and then this, you know, the main event for the light heavyweight title, he had two flawless performances. Rashad Evans, as far as I'm concerned, is clearly the number two light heavyweight in the world, and he was no match for Leota Machida. He's just starting to realize the power in his hands. He's starting to realize it's okay to hurt your opponents. That's what you actually get paid for. Um, he's going to start putting people away. There's nobody out there right now that can touch him. Rampage, that fight's going to be a joke. Um, Rampage is the Sean Shirk of the light heavyweight division right now. He's a a wrestler who's forgotten his wrestling base. And, you know, I'd like to say he's he's nothing but a kickboxer now, but he's not even a kickboxer. He's just a boxer. Um, that's not going to be the way... That's not going to be the way to beat Leota Machida. And looking down the line, you know, Shogun, some, of your, some people are throwing out that name. I don't think he stands a chance. Um, and and the, the craziest thing is, we always talk about the precipitous decline that fighters have as they get on in years. Well, that's because of, you know, you get punched in the face so many times that your body just can't take it anymore and you lose your reaction time. Leoto doesn't get punched in the face. He's going to be able to do this as long as he pleases. That's what karate is great for. You don't sustain any damage. That's why you see 
70, 80-year-old, you know, 10th-degree black belts in karate still being badasses because they can't be touched. That's that's what they predicate their style on is, is defense. Um, the only name that I can possibly throw out there, and this is three to four years minimum down the line, that can give him a run for his money is John Jones. He's the only guy out there with the physical tools, the you know sponge-like learning, the the rapid ascent that we've seen him make from fight to fight. That if he keeps going along that path, that could be a pretty pretty awesome fight in a couple of years. But unfortunately, it's probably going to be you know a year and a half before he gets thrown to the wolves because he's the only person left, and he's not going to be ready for that fight yet. So I think Machida will be champion as long as he feels like it. Um, I honestly wonder if Anderson Silva will eventually wonder if he can solve the Machida riddle and want to fight Machida, and, and I don't think he'll be able to. I think that would be a, a fantastic fight to watch um, if it ever would happen. But I, I just think Machida right now has an untouchable style, and it's going to take somebody you know who has been training some form of so some form of kung fu or karate for, since they were the time they were two years old to come along the next several years to beat Machida and and obviously I, I don't think we're going to see that so this is the Machida era enjoy it it's going to be fun people are going to love that he's a karate champion he showed off a lot of personality in his post fight interview it cracked me up when he said thank you Joe Rogan and gave him a hug um, it was just a, it was a great night it was a perfect capper to the evening. And I'm really happy for him, and I'm really happy for for the UFC's late heavyweight division going forward. I, I love him as the champion. All right, guys, that's another event under our belts. We've got a very, very busy June coming up, and then, uh, of course, our gigantic events in July and August. So we will be talking to you plenty during the summer. Uh, thanks for joining me again on the Torch Audio Update, and uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you. Take care.